to put that on the door, and we were fine with that. Uh, this Wednesday, reminder, there was a, uh, an advertisement, I guess, or a screen, promote, uh, something on the screen to promote this as a reminder for announcements, and that is uh, this Wednesday, pool play date at the Groves. That is going to be from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Just a reminder, this is not a drop-off and go, uh, so it's not, you know... <laughs> Needs to be said, you know, probably, um, you know, so uh, if you want to do that, that is to come and to, 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 to fellowship and just let the kids enjoy some fun in the sun along with yourself and just to have a good time. That's from 11 to 2. As far as food is concerned, bring a picnic-type lunch for yourself, for your family, and uh, so that you can do that. You don't have to do that if you don't want to, but that is, uh, if you're going to eat food, you're going to have to bring it yourself. Again, not a drop-off thing. This is a adult, bring your child, stay, and then leave with your child. Uh, for those of you who are MC leaders, we will be doing an MC uh, leader meeting mid-July. We don't have a date solidified for that, but we're definitely going to do that. Uh, so just kind of heads up there. Also a reminder that MCs are not meeting the month of July. Take a little bit break is what we normally do. Take a break during that time. Uh, July is also very, very busy for a lot of families, you know, going uh, on vacation and stuff like that. Family coming, family going. So sometimes it's just easier to take a little bit of a break. If your group should choose to get together and have a meal or go somewhere, do something, play disc golf, whatever, by all means, uh, do that. If your group is like, hey, we really want to keep meeting, by all means, do that. We're just saying this is generally what we do. We take a break during the month of July. So, all right, but we will be meeting with you leaders um, to do an overview of things and to have one of our meetings. Also, women's meeting, 6.30 on the 27th, which I believe is next Sunday. Yeah, so that's the 27th, 6.30 meeting here. Uh, final announcement is we still need volunteers for... Uh, the renewal program through Miracle Hill for their meal prep, which is all we can really do right now. Again, uh, as was announced a few weeks ago, we're looking forward to being able to interact with these women, especially our ladies, being able to get uh, in the facil facility and have Bible studies with these women and things of that nature. Uh, and men, we will we'll, we'll serve and, and, and do as we can, whatever's permissible in that ministry. But uh, one way that we can serve is by signing up to help do the meal prep. Uh, if any of you, I have not, but I've watched enough shows that if you've ever worked in a kitchen or done anything like that, it takes a, a good bit, you know, uh, to feed any amount of, of people. So if you'll sign up for that, do that. Uh, my family arrived back last night about six thirty after a 10 hour trip, uh, back home with, uh, with, with, with only, well, with four kids in the van, but it somehow felt like 40. You ever had one of those trips where it's like, let me, let me do a head count here. We have gathered some children along the way the volume is just intense but uh but we're back we've we we very much missed being here uh, i know we only missed one sunday but we were gone for 10 days and just it's a long time uh it's a long time my boss wrote, sent me facebook messages you need to come back to work <laughs> he needs me those two days a week i guess you know so um anyway but we're glad to be back we we, we definitely missed it uh anytime we're out we just kind of feel out of out of place um a lot of places I feel out of place, but that's okay. So let's read uh, as our call to worship Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. 
You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is a light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would do the same thing for us that the psalmist is asking you to do for him, and that's to search our hearts. That you would search our hearts and that you would see if there be any wicked way in us and that you would expose such wickedness to us. And through your kindness that you might lead us to repentance. Lord, that in addition to being reconciled to you salvifically, Lord, that we might be reconciled to you in the sense that we are repenters. As followers of Christ, we deny ourselves. Lord, give us the strength to deny ourselves daily, to take up our cross and to follow you. Lord, give us the eyes to see and the heart to discern those areas in our life that we need to deny ourselves of. Help us to see those things. Lord, I pray that you would give us an intolerable hatred for sin that we covet, that we hold so dear. The sins that entangle us, the sins that we run to, the sins that we justify. We pray that you would search us and expose us to those, those dark recesses that your word is able to cut through as joint and marrow. Lord, and that your light would expose those things and that your light will infiltrate us. Lord, and bring us into the fellowship that you desire for us, the fellowship that you will delight in. Lord, give us hearts that are contrite. Make us humble before you. Father, I pray as the psalmist prays as well, Lord, as the enemies encamp around him, as he speaks of his hatred for them. I don't don't quite understand all of that. Um, I I don't quite 
know how to reconcile that just yet with what I read in other places in Scripture. But Lord, I pray that you would give us an understanding of these things, that you would give us an understanding and a right perspective and relationship towards those who are enemies, who we are called to love. And help us to understand what your word means in its depth and its grandeur. Help us to rightly apply these things and not to be hasty with application that we don't understand. But to sit, to rest, to remain silent and just know that you're God. And Holy Spirit, trusting that you will make revelation to us as we need it so that we can rightly appropriate your truth. Father, I pray that you will inhabit the praises of your people. Jesus, we celebrate you today, and we thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you for the atonement. We thank you for what you've solidified in our life through your work and not ours. We ask that we might offer to you what is a pleasing aroma. And Father, finally, I I pray for the fathers here in this room. Fathers uh, present, fathers not present, fathers to be. Maybe one day, who knows? But I pray that you would make us men of God. I pray that we would keep in mind what matters most. And that our families might be able to forgive us where we fail them as we fail you. Where sometimes we're prone to wonder and we abandon our roles as fathers, whether intellectually, emotionally, or actively. Father, would you give us grace to be diligent and vigilant in our pursuit of being what you've called us to be as fathers. And thank you for the example we have as you are our Father. And you are perfect and all your ways are right and true. And may we emulate those to the best of our ability by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
Kids, if you want to come up and join me up front. How are you doing today? Good? Nobody's great. Nobody's. Well. (laughs) Yes, you are. I'm going to stand up if that's okay. I forgot to get the the headset from Mr. Austin. So we'll, we'll do this today. All right. So, all right. Let me know something that you think is very, very expensive. Just raise your hand. Something very expensive that you could never afford. Ellie. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Let, all right, all right. Let's, let's go a little bit higher, okay? $100 big cheetah, which, which I think I've seen. It's pretty cool. Something about your obsession with cheetahs that is really interesting. Marley. 
an elephant. What do you think an elephant might cost a lot? <laughs> All right, an elephant. All right, what about you, Emma? A whole beach. There are people that own islands, you know what I'm saying? But that's super expensive. You can, you can guarantee millions of dollars. I don't know about billions. I guess it depends on where. Yes, Willow. A house. I, probably a lot of us in this room don't own our houses, right? We're still paying for them. It takes a long time. Ethan. A Lamborghini. Yeah. A couple hundred thousand dollars, right? I think, the, I think, the, I, I think Emma is kind of is scratching the, the surface here with, uh, with, with an island. Okay, who thinks they can afford an island? You got to have a lot of money to afford an island, right? What What if I said, um, "How about How about New York?" It would cost a lot to own New York, right? We're probably talking billions of dollars, right? Like Jeff Bezos' money, right? So these are really, really expensive things, right? From from cheetahs to islands to cities, you know, to elephants and all of these things. But here's the thing. Let's say that Ethan has $10 in his pocket, right? $10 in his pocket. And I say, Ethan, I have for sale the island all right, of Hawaii, right? Ethan, how much money you got? Put it on the table. You're going to slap $10 on the table. And I'm going to say what to you with regards to you buying this island for $10? I'm going to say, get that 10 out of my face, right? You can't, you can't afford an island for $10, right? You want me to pick on somebody else? I will. Willow, you look like a great candidate. Willow, if you showed up with $20 in your pocket and you said, I'd like to buy the island of Hawaii. I want all the waterfalls, all the mountains, everything the tourists go there to do. I want it, all right? I want it. And you said, here's 15 bucks. Do you think that's going to buy it? You have 20 bucks. You think that's going to buy it? Willow, what if you showed up with a million bucks and you said, I want to buy the island of Hawaii, and you said, here's a million dollars. You slide it across the table. Willow, can you afford the island of Hawaii for a million dollars? Absolutely no. Absolutely not. Right. There are things that are so expensive that probably all of us will never be able to afford because the price is too high. It's not possible right? It's not possible. And that's an important thing to understand as we open the Bible. Listen to this, okay? A very popular Bible verse or verses that that concern you all, okay? I know that Hawaii doesn't necessarily concern you. Buying an elephant doesn't necessarily concern you. I get it. A cheetah does concern Ellie. I get that. But, but this, what I'm going to read to you, concerns you. This is about you, and about me. So we listen. Check this out. Check this out. Listen to this. The man who wrote this, his name is Paul. We've heard of Paul before, right? He was an apostle, right? We understand this. Hello. Check this out. Listen to this. Everybody listening? Raise your hand if you're listening. Two, three, four, four. Okay. Here we go. For by grace, you've heard this word before, by grace you have been saved through faith, right? Familiar with that? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are all 
his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's talking to Christians here. He's talking to the church in Ephesus. So if you're a Christian, he's saying to you, you're saved by grace through faith, but you're saved not by your works. Everybody this way. You're saved by your work. You're not saved by your works, but you're saved by grace. Now, this is very important. First of all, do we know what the word saved means? Let's, let's, let's break it down a little bit because it's very important. Do you know what the word saved means? You want to give it a shot? You sure you do. What if you're in the water, you can't swim, I come and I pull you out? Did I save you? I rescued you from drowning, right? That's, that's pretty important. If you know how to, if you don't, what if you know how to swim? What if you bump your head, you're unconscious, and you're floating there like a log, but then you start sinking and you're going to drown? I save you. Shh, everybody, listen. We got that, right? So we understand what it means to rescue someone, to save someone. This is talking about not being saved from drowning in water, not being saved from a cheetah attack, not being saved from being trampled by an elephant, but being saved from your sin, being saved from the eternal judgment of God. Y'all listen, listen to this. Is there anything worse than the eternal judgment of God? No way. No way. Ellie, is there anything worse than the eternal judgment of God? No way. It's pretty bad. And so Paul gives us great news. He says, guess what? You are saved by grace through faith. It is not of your works. So the point is this. Everybody listening, here's the point. The point is, God says... He wants men to be saved, rescued from their sin. The problem is you can't afford it. You can't pay enough. You can't do enough. It's like that island. You don't have enough money to buy that. But on a much bigger scale, we're talking about salvation. You can't do enough good. You can't be kind enough to your brother and sister. You can't do enough chores. You can't, you can't, you can't mind your mother and father enough to earn that kind of favor with God. We can't do it. So we've got a problem, right? The price is, the cost is perfection. Do y'all know what that means? Do you know what it means to be perfect? Anybody want to take a stab at it? What does it mean to be perfect? Marley, what does it mean to be perfect? <laughs> be like Jesus. Are any of you Jesus? Did any of you atone for sin? Did any of you conquer death? Or any of you, did any of you ascend to the right hand of the Father? No? Did any of you exist from eternity past? No? Did any of you have the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form? No? Or any of you the, the, the exact representation of his glory? Nope. Nope. We're just people. But in order for us to be saved and right with God, it takes perfection. That's the cost. Well, now we've got another problem because Ellie's not perfect. Eddie Grace is not perfect. Mr. Allen's not perfect. Ethan is show not perfect, right? We've got a lot of imperfection represented right here. We've all got a bunch of problems. Sophie is not perfect. She's cute, but she's not perfect, right? So what do we do? Well, here's the good news. Shh, listen, you're, yeah, you're sitting in Emma's seat. This is what's important. Jesus is the perfect one who atoned, who gave his life to pay the price that it cost to be right with God. Jesus did that for us. Now, 
So we're saved by grace. It's his gracious work, something we didn't deserve, that rescues us. What is the role that we play? Faith. We have faith. We trust. We trust Christ. We didn't do anything for it. That faith is even given to you, by the way. It's a gift, right? It's an awesome thing. So we know we're not saved by works, right? We can't earn it. Jesus earned it, right? So here's the next question. And the final question is this. All right, you did good on the first half. Here's a second little section. So what are works for? I mean, works are important, but they don't save you. Works don't help you with your sin. So what do works do? What does God expect of us? Layla, do you know? Do you know what God expects of us? Anybody? I know you got tons of answers. Let me help you with this, all right? Listen to this, and we'll close. Listen to this. It says, so you're saved by grace through faith. It is not your own doing, you're not your work. You couldn't afford it. You couldn't do enough. You couldn't pay enough. Jesus did because he's perfect, and he is enough. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, listen, everybody, look, look, look. We're created for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're created for them. And the works that honor Jesus are the works that we live out once we are rescued from our sin. So everything that you do as a follower of Jesus, that's a work unto the glory of God is honorable to God. Me as a Christian, I try to have integrity. I try to be honest. I try to have a good work ethic. I try to be fair. I try to be kind. I try to do all these things. Why do I do them? Not so that I might be saved, but I do them because I've been saved. So there's a difference. Listen to me. Let me finish with this thought because this is important for you to know. The world around you will teach you that you have to do enough good to be accepted by God. But Jesus is the only one that can do good so that you might be acceptable to God. And the good that Jesus did was live perfectly and suffer and die and then conquer death so that we might have life. Now, the result of that upon our faith is that we are given the gift of life in Christ Jesus and we live for him. Those were, are where our good works matter. Our works don't matter to save us, but they do matter to show that we have actually been saved. Okay, let's pray. And then you can be dismissed with Miss Sarah back there. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take these truths and that you would communicate them to these young hearts and these young minds. Father, I pray that we might, even as adults, have a more robust understanding of how the gospel works and how it's applied in terms of grace and faith and works. Lord, I think even as believers, Lord, we lean on our works a lot of times to hope for some kind of favor with God. But I pray that you'd spare us from that kind of theology. Lord, that we might understand that we have eternal favor with God because of what Jesus has done. And our works are not so that we may curry that favor, but that we might honor Christ with our life that he purchased through his. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
If you guys will stand and sing with us for two more songs. to those 
Let's pray together as Austin comes up to preach. Father, we ask that you would give us great grace to receive your word today. Father, that we might make right application of it. Lord, I pray that you would give Austin the the grace, Lord, to be able to stand here as your spokesman, to sit under your word and before us, Lord, behind what has been known as the sacred desk for years and years. Um, Lord, as we have opportunity to to open and to offer your words of life. And uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, just allow us to have a worshipful experience, Lord, as we subject ourselves to your word. Lord, we believe it. We don't understand it always, and we definitely misapply it sometimes. Help us to understand it. Holy Spirit, make it clear to us. Uh, Jesus, help us to... Have great delight in your word to take great delight in uh, in its power and its reality and its and its life and uh, Lord, I ask that you would bless us as we sit under it in Jesus name amen well, if you have a Bible and I hope you do, turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Find uh, find Matthew in the New Testament and go backwards. Just a few books, and you'll find Habakkuk there. There. And uh, last week, so I I think I previously said when we launched this series through Habakkuk, Alan and I would kind of trade off, you know, one week one, then one week the other, and then we realized, well, Alan's going to be gone this past week. I preached last week, Alan was gone this past week, and uh, just given the dynamics of things, it made sense for me to preach a second week. Um, So that's why I'm up here instead of Alan. Um, So we're in Habakkuk chapter 2. We'll be in verses 6 through 20. Last week, um, we covered just a few verses and got to really dive into those, and I'll I'll kind of summarize those and and bring everybody up to speed on that in a minute. But this week, we're going to be covering a much broader section. Uh, We're going to be covering verses 6 through 20. So let's let's read those now, and I'll I'll open us with prayer. Habakkuk 2.6. Will not all these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. To put his nest on high. To be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not from the hand of the or is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourselves drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them, because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For, it may, for its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, Arise! And is that your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and yet there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let's pray. Like as we come to your word, as we come to this point in our study and, and Habakkuk, and Lord, we're faced with warnings. May we never see ourselves as so lofty that we're beyond the warnings and they don't apply to us. But may they also never crush us. May they drive us to the foot of the cross to see Jesus high and lifted up. And as we sang recently, may we see his blood applied. And the sign overhead that says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Father, I pray as we as we look at your word this morning, Father, would you humble any proud hearts that are here this morning, any inklings of pride, any, any areas where, Father, we are looking toward ourselves and our own righteousness and boasting more in, 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 in a God fashioned in our own image rather than you. Father, would you bring conviction? And then quickly bring faith. Father, would you strengthen our hearts this morning that we may walk in a firm foundation of faith in the midst of a frustrating world. Father, would you keep me tethered to the text? There's so much here, so much that we could discuss. I've got an objective, got a place that we need to get to. So, Father, keep me tethered to what you have shown in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, well, obviously we have a lot to cover, a lot of ground, so I'm going to dive straight into this. But uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, or, or if you've missed a week, or if you're like me and you're suffering from just the natural aging process of being forgetful, um, let me summarize kind of where we are. Uh, so we started a study of Habakkuk. Habakkuk writes, um, and he's, he's writing from... Uh, from the uh, from Ju from Judah, okay, from from Judah, uh, Israel has already fallen to the Assyrians. He's writing from Judah, and Judah, the people of Judah, have forsaken God. They've collected uh, religious um, uh, theology from these other nations, and they have jettisoned essentially God's uh, 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 God's law, and they've turned away from Him. And so God and and. Habakkuk is seeing this, and he's writing, and he's, he's crying out to the Lord. He's been doing this for a long time. Lord, how long? How long until you're going to bring justice? How long until you fix this? And God responds to him in a vision, 
and says, I'm going to. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, that fearful and dreaded people, and I'm going to discipline Judah. And the Chaldeans eventually become the Babylonians, and they conquer Judah. And in the course of three sieges, lay waste to Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and cart off uh, 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 the, the people of God into exile. Okay, this happens later after Habakkuk. So Habakkuk hears this, this, uh, this prophecy. He writes it, he records it, and then he poses another question to God. Okay, well, God, I'm struggling with this because, I mean, here we are, here we're your covenant people. Okay, we're pretty bad, but we're not as bad as them. And so struggling with this, you know, you're, you're going to use this more wicked people in order to punish us, and we're a less wicked people. You know, how does this work? How are you going to be covenantally faithful you know, when this people is going to be like fishermen who worship their nets and they just drag their nets throughout all of these cities, all these towns, all these places, and they just, just rape the land. And Lord, how does that work? And God answers him, be patient. Be patient. And he answers him really in one, one sentence, which is what we looked at last week. He says, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. So Habakkuk, step back and think about this from my perspective. Who is the one who is deserving of my judgment? The one who is proud. He makes a moral statement. The proud one, his soul is not upright within him. He is not morally righteous in my sight. Why? Because he looks within himself for righteousness. And we talked about that last week and how, righteous, how, how pride can manifest itself like a tumor. Right? Sometimes a tumor is on the outside, you know, it's just under the surface, and it's very clear, and it deforms the, the body, and it's very obvious this is the problem that's wrong. Sometimes pride manifests itself like that, and it's very, very clear and obvious. More often than not, though, it's like the tumor that's deep down within. It's growing, it's metastasizing, it's getting worse, it's festering, and you can see the effects of it, but unless you do the deep surgical digging you don't know what the source is. That's how pride works. He says the proud is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. And what he doesn't mean is that the morally pure, as if we could obtain that, he says the one who is justified. And last week I made the argument that, the, that what he's saying to Habakkuk is on the same grounds of what the way, the manner in which uh, Abraham was justified. Remember Genesis, Abraham was justified, was, he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's a parallel passage with Habakkuk 2.4. And so God is just laying out this that no one is justified in the sight of God by their own works. No one is good enough. Nobody has the moral high ground. Only those who are justified by faith live by faith and are right with God. So that was the point of last week. This week we get to the point where God kind of pulls back the curtain. And he says, I've got five charges against the proud heart. So that's where we are this morning. Five warnings for the proud heart. So what I want to do is, like I said, we've got a lot to work through. Um, so here's kind of the, the way I want to look at this. I'm going to give some kind of preliminary overarching statements that I think will help bring clarity to what we're looking at. Because as you read through this, I'm sure, especially if this is kind of your first reading of it, it's like, okay, what in the world is going on here? How do I understand this? Help me out. Okay, so let me help give you a framework for how to understand this, okay? Um, and then I want to just, I'm going to hit each of those five warnings, 
and we're going to look at the woe, which is the warning. Okay, we're going to look at the threat that's given and the reason. And then I'm going to make a brief application. Okay, and it is Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. I want to make a specific application for fathers. Okay, that fits with where we are. It's hard for me not to let that go, just to take opportunity. Okay, so if you came for a Father's Day sermon, you're going to get one. From an odd spot, okay, but you're going to get one. Um, all right, so that's where, that's where we are. That's kind of going to be how we're going to handle this. Okay, but before we dive into that, one just kind of idea, because a lot of times we come to these texts in the Old Testament, we're like, there's really nothing here for me. There's nothing really here. What do I do with this? I just read it and move on. But there is a lot here, because stories like this that occurred in real time, in real history, are applicable for us. And this is a great example, because this is like a parable that happened in real time in history for a postmodern nation. Okay, commentators kind of argue about this section in Habakkuk. Is, is this, was God speaking about the, the Chaldeans, about the Babylonians, or was he talking about Judah? You know, which one? Because the five woes that are given here parallel very, very closely the six woes that are given in Isaiah 6. Let me get my numbers right. In Isaiah 6 to Israel. Okay, Israel, the northern kingdom, several hundred years prior, had committed wicked sins, okay? A lot of the same charges are, are applied to them when God brings in the Assyrians to decimate them. Okay, so the commentators kind of argue about this, but they all agree that these charges are given to the proud in heart. They're given to the proud in heart, na uh, individually and nationally. Okay, so the idea here is that the faithful ones, those who are faithful, justified by faith, sanctified by faith, okay, they're the few. They're, they're the few. Okay, get this. You, you've got the nation of Judah, a religious people, boasting in their religiosity, and, and yet they know nothing of God. They have jets in him as he is and as he has demonstrated himself to be. But they're going to boast in their religiosity. We're a better morally religious people. And yet you have the Babylonians who are just wicked and godless. And so the, you know, they look at one another, we're better than you. We hold the moral high ground, you know, whatever. But neither is true. God says, you know, the faithful, those who live by faith are the ones who live. And the idea there is that's the, the few. So we shouldn't come to this and think, well, oh, well, if I align on this one side or align on that one side, I'm good. We should really stand here and humble and go, this is, this is something I should pay really, really close attention to. Okay? They, neither nation was looking to God and trusting in his ways and his promises. Consequently, they were looking elsewhere to false gods for help and affirmation. And they abused power and resources in order to gain glory, security, and happiness. This only resulted in shame, violence, and despair. I mentioned that this is a parable for a postmodern nation because it's not a much of a stretch to take a glance out across the landscape of our culture and see a great parallel. Right? When you look at how per pervasive identity politics are, virtue signaling, dishonoring people in the name of God without any regard for God and His grace and what He's given to us in Christ, rampant uh, rise in violence, murder of the unborn children, freedom, total freedom, expression of sex, uh, sexual expression on identity. You know, the, the, the idea that I can be me and you don't have anything to say about who I am, whatever I want to do. It's not hard to see a parallel between the, the conflict in our nation, between different ideologies 
Where does the Christian stand? What does it mean to be faithful to God in the midst of this frustrating world? Well, here we find God has a warning for any people who look to themselves for righteousness. He says, beware, the very thing that you pursue will turn around and consume you. So as we come to texts like this, it warrants our pausing and looking at them and reflecting on them because there's a great lesson that God has for us to learn. All right, so let me give you a few just bracket preliminary marks. Hope that was meant to get your attention. So hopefully, you know, you're, you're clued in or not uh, in, in, in what we're going to look at this morning. So let me give you some framework here for how to look at this. Okay, these are five woes they're given. Hopefully you picked that up uh, in the cadence of, of the verses. Five woes, and woe is a broad term in the Old Testament. Oftentimes it means judgment. Um, it can also be used to draw attention to something uh, in particular, kind of like a ha or hey, look at this. And these are called taunts that mock the proud heart. Now you think about that, that might initially rub you the wrong way, thinking God's too holy to mock or taunt. And this is what we tell our kids, you know, don't, don't mock someone, don't taunt them. And yet well, that's what we find God doing here is mocking or taunting but keep this in mind that part of the way that God vindicates his own righteousness is to publicly shame the wicked by showing that they are indeed unrighteous okay now keep this in mind this is a unique part of God's character one that he does not share with us okay therefore we are not to mock and shame others for our own glory Okay, so the thrust of these verses as we read them is meant to deliver, they're delivered to the proud audience by a human speaker. And the thrust of that is the vindication of God's own character. That's what's behind the taunt. Okay? Not the, own, not, not the, the proclaimer, not Habakkuk's own character, not his own na-na-na-boo-boo, but God's own vindication of his very righteousness. So therefore, the speaker, the one who proclaims it, proclaims the message with humble boldness, with the desire for repentance for his audience. That's important for us now as Christians because that same spirit of humble boldness should characterize how we proclaim the gospel to others. Does that make sense? All right. Also, think about or look at you can look at the literary style that's here here's something that's really lost in translation um, is the framework of this perhaps in your bible depending on how you're looking at it it's broken up into sections almost like poetry and it very much is um, the, the Habakkuk as he's writing this used various writing techniques um, alliteration rhyming plays on words things like that um, in order to solidify these woes in the minds of those who would hear Okay, very similar to, you know, poetry, catchy songs, you know, that just stick in your brain. Okay, that was the idea behind these taunt songs, these woes, was that they would stick in the minds of those who heard. And this was to signify their importance for the immediate audience, but not only that, for the generations to come, to vindicate the faithful and haunt the proud. Okay, so if you, if you kind of struggle with it as you're reading it, notice that what you're reading Part of that struggle is because the way it's translated, you're not picking up on a lot of the rhythmic pattern, a lot of the alliteration, a lot of the things that's in the original Hebrew, okay? 
it's there, but the whole purpose of the way these things were written was so they'd stick in the minds of the people who heard it. But notice also, too, and I hope this will become clear kind of as we move through it, God is not specifically condemning life practices here, but rather he condemns the way the proud heart abuses those practices. Okay, all of this stems from that verse 4. The proud heart is not upright within him, but the justified, the one who's justified by faith, will live. Okay, he's not condemning the practice of loaning money or acquiring possessions or building a home or building cities. He's not even condemning alcohol or parties. Rather, he condemns the way the proud heart uses these practices for self-glory and at the expense of others. Okay, pull this forward. What does this mean for us today? Okay, this should inform how we think about concepts like systemic racism. Okay? The problem is not rooted in the systems alone, but rather in the hearts of the people who employ those systems. Okay, yes, we should change systems that clearly give one group of people an advantage over another or do damage to a particular group of people. Yes, but it's a mistake to dismantle the entire social experiment thinking that a new set of social norms and practices alone will solve such issues. The problem begins in the heart and the gospel speaks directly to the heart. Okay, that's the whole point of this right here. God is speaking to the heart of his audience. All right, and the last thing. This is an element, I think, if, we, if, you're th if you're thinking about this, that this can also be unsettling. God's use of reciprocity as he dispenses judgment. As we go through this, a lot of times what, you know, what, what you're going to see is God says, okay, here's what you've done, you know, here's, here's what you've done wrong. Here's the, pr here, here's the problem, the way your wicked, proud heart has manifested itself, and you're going to get what you deserve. The same way that you have treated other people is the same way I'm going to treat you. An eye for an eye, as it's often called, you get what you deserve. Okay, that can be unsettling for us, especially in our culture. But it's important for us to realize that one of the threads that's woven into the redemptive narrative is God's display of his impartial justice. Okay, that each person will be, a uh, will be judged according to his own works. That's Romans 2.6. And that God will be impartial in his distribution of that punishment. Okay? Nobody gets more than they deserve. Nobody gets less. But that's distributed based on God's economy. Okay? Now, this is important because we're going to come back to this at the end. Because I think it will be very, very uh, encouraging to us as we see how the gospel dovetails into this. All right, so there's kind of a framework, hopefully, to help give us some boundaries for how we understand this section in Habakkuk. So, all right, let's walk through these five woes. We're going to look at the woe, we'll look at the threat, the reason, the nation. Okay, this is going to be really quick moving through it just because we've got to cover a lot of ground, but I hope that it'll be easy just to take some things away and maybe just allow you to better, more clearly underst understand a, a kind of a more com complex section of the Scripture. All right, so the first one, verses 6 through 8. Will not all these take up a taunt psalm, song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, now here's where the woe begins, woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them, because you have looted many nations. All the remainders of the people will loot you. 
because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. So what's the woe? The woe is that of extortion. Two issues with the proud heart. Theft and the abuse of pledges. Okay, that's, that's the loaning. Okay, pledges was an early form of loaning in which someone who had money or had goods and someone who did not or was in need would loan a cloak or a jacket or a piece of property or something that was of you know, value to them. They would loan that to the other individual so that they may borrow money or borrow goods. Okay? The literal term here is uh, for, for this extortioner is a piling up of stolen goods. Okay, basically obtaining money or goods by the abuse of one's authority or power. Seeing that you have the power and you have the authority captured by the goods and things that you have, someone else has need. And you see the opportunity to take advantage of that person. <clears throat> okay, so that, that's the woe. Now what's the threat? The threat is in verse 7. Your debtors will arise and plunder you. The very people that are indebted to you they will turn around and they will plunder you. And the reason God gives is because you have plundered the nations. You've shed blood and you've left the land. You've left the creation desolate. Notice the sweeping span of the consequence of this extortion. It doesn't just do damage to one individual, but it has a sweeping span that as if, it's left, uh, un, uh, if it's left unchecked, begins to affect all of creation. Now, what do we do with this? How do we make application? It's a warning about making your wealth or making your living by unjust practices that dishonor your fellow man by taking advantage of him. And doing so will incur God's judgment. That we ought to practice, as, as Scripture says, just weights and just balances. Gain your living by honest means without destroying the livelihood of others. And that we should always keep in mind that whatever, by, that whatever means you use to acquire life, that's money, possessions, property, you'll receive the same treatment when God comes to collect because God is the final collector. Let me make a specific application to fathers. Fathers, let me encourage you to practice fair trade in your jobs and in your home with anyone who's around you. Consider how your actions, especially when you have authority and power, whether that's great or small, and if you're a father, you have that. But practice just balances and just weights. Honor the dignity of others as you, as you execute that power and that authority. So the first woe is the woe of extortion. The second is like it, but it's more specific to, to the home. It's the idol of possessions at the expense of people. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You've devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer, from, answer it from the framework. So what's the woe? The woe is building a house, okay, that's, that's, a, uh, uh, that's anything fortune, a power structure, any means of personal security through unjust gain, okay? That's when, it, when it talks about uh, putting a nest on high, right, where, where, where does an eagle build its nest? 
in the tallest, highest trees. It's secure up there. That's the picture. That's the idea. Is I'm going to use whatever means necessary in order to procure security for myself. And the picture of that is a strong, sturdy house, strong, sturdy fortune, strong and sturdy power structure, whatever that means is. And it's by unjust gain. That literally means an evil cut. Okay, it was a practice that occurred with clothing and textile. You know, someone bought X amount of feet, let's say, or X amount of, you know, however much. And the person who had the cloth would cut it short. Okay, I mean, how many people are going to roll that out and see okay, exactly how much? No, they trust the person whom they're buying from. They cut it short. All right, and it, so they, therefore they were cheating their customer. And this became an idiom for making profits by cheating or even by through violence. Now, what's interesting is this specific pra practice was loathed in the Old Testament by the Old Testament leaders. It's explicitly prohibited by God. And yet here God applies this. He takes what he specifically tells the nation not to do. Israel, Judah. What he tells them not to do. And he applies it to the broader global, uh, to, to the broader global landscape. Okay, it should tell us that nations are not judged by their own moral standards, but God's. Therefore, it's, an, it, it's the responsibility of his covenant people to advocate for his standards in the midst of a, of a culture that diverges from those standards. Now, what's the threat? The threat is shame and death. Now, the very security they were trying to, to build would testify against them and bring shame thus securing their destruction. Right? That's what he says when the rafters will cry out against them. And the reason, because you've cut off many people, literally you have plotted the ruin of many people by cheating them. How do we make application of this? Christian, beware the trap that materialism sets is it makes you feel invincible. Yes, if I, if I only have enough stuff, I only have enough you know, money in my bank account, if I only have enough whatever this is, I'll set my nest on high. It gives the false sense of security that, that you're untouchable by calamity or even divine judgment. And we should be wise and recognize there's a relationship between stuff and people. That when stuff becomes our idol, we destroy others. We rob them of their time, their earnings, their dignity. We're literally planning their demise. Notice in verse 11 when he says that the rafters, the stones will cry out from the wall, the rafters will answer from the, from the framework. That the wickedness in this home was so rampant, even though it looked sturdy and good on the outside, the wickedness that was inside it was so rampant that the very timbers on which the home was built would cry out for justice. When, we, when stuff becomes our idol, we destroy others. But when we value people as created in the image of God, broken, in need of redemption, in need of His grace, we treasure people rightly above stuff. Our nest is secure no matter how big or small that nest is. I'll never forget a conversation I, I, I had with Alan before we even moved here. He was telling me about his children and a conversation that he had with his kids. And one of the things they used to, you know, that he used to tell them, probably still does, People are more important than things. 
And I was like, that's really, really good. He may have borrowed it from somebody. I don't know. But it's really good. I'm like, that's very true. People are more important than things. As my children have gotten older, I've just realized that we really treasure stuff more so than people. But when we value people rightly above stuff. Our nest is secure no matter how big or small that nest is. Where is your priority? Where is your priority? Take stock of where you are. And I'm going to encourage you to set your nest on high by discipling your family, by modeling for them faithfulness to the covenant God who is. The third woe. Oppressive labor for national glory. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations go weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's the woe? Woe to the one who builds a city on bloodshed and crime. Right? This was overt violence like war. And or could be the mistreatment of captured people that resulted in violence or death. And the crime would be a legal violation Legal violations that were social, pr proprietary, dealt with property, or commercial in nature. The overall idea there, building a, a nation by judging or showing partiality to wickedness in order to establish that nation. We're going to build a nation, we're going to build a city, we're going to build a people, you know, and the way we're going to do it, we're going to show partiality to wickedness. Isaiah 26.10 says, people that do that, they ignore God's majesty. Woe to the one who builds a city on bloodshed and crime. The threat in verse 13 is that the city will be for vanity, nothingness, and will be destroyed. And that's given as, as almost like a question. And it is a question. No city will stand. All the efforts put into building that city, it won't stand. I work in construction, and I'm reminded myself constantly, man, this is great, Austin. You, you know, did a great job. It's going to burn. <laughs> you know, it's not, not going to be there. The city will be for vanity and nothingness and will be destroyed. And what's the reason? The reason is because the whole earth will be full of the glory of God. The whole purpose. You know, the, the people look at the city and say, this is for our glory. This is for our exaltation. Think about Babylon. You know, look how great we are in this city. This is a little, little place. God, says, God looks beyond that and goes, no, the, 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 my purpose in all of history and all of what I'm building is that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Okay, let's footnote that for a minute. Right, let's footnote something here. And go back to that idea of what, why, why are we here? Why do, why do passages like this in the Old Testament matter? Because it would be easy to look at this and go, well, this only applies to Habakkuk. And you know, it's all just history. There's really nothing there because everything that's talked about here happens right there. So maybe it's a little bit of a parable. You know, we can make some moral teaching. 
but that's really it. But look at that verse. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, that's given in two other places in the Old Testament, in Numbers and Isaiah. It's a promise. That didn't happen when Judah was destroyed. That didn't happen when Babylon was destroyed. This is a future promise that doesn't come true until much, much later beyond us. So it's passages like this and specifically prophecies like this that show that God isn't just talking about the people here and what's going on right here and what happens later, 100, 200 millennia later, doesn't really matter. They all fit together. Okay, because God's carrying out an overall big picture purpose for redeeming a people for himself and demonstrating to the entire universe, the cosmos, his justice and his justifying of the wicked. We'll get to that. And all of these things fit together. God doesn't change when you get to the New Testament and it becomes all warm and fuzzy and he's old and crotchety and judgmentally. His character is the same. He doesn't change from day to day. And we can see that very clearly just in this one prophetic word. This is what I'm after. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And that's an intimate knowledge. That's not like book smart. You know, that's an intimate knowing of God through Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll get to that. Okay, but I want you to see that. Okay, the Old Testament matters for us. In the footnote. So the woe, woe to the one who builds a city on bloodshed and crime. And the thread is, all that work's going to be for vanity and nothingness. Why? Because God's got a bigger picture. He's got a bigger picture. The, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. So what's our application? Beware of making national glory preeminent. But we're that there's a lot of talk in our culture right now about pride in America on, on, on all different sides. Political, moral, you name it. Everybody's proud to be an American. We must be careful about making that preeminent. And one of the telltale signs that this is happening is that you'll use whatever means are necessary in order to establish that nation. The means will justify the end. Can you see how that mindset and that proud heart can lead to violence very quickly and very easily? And crime. The temporary nature of any human enterprise ought to deeply humble and direct our, our, our efforts to establish society. Now, fathers, let me, let me challenge you. What kingdom, what kingdom has preeminence in your life? What are you modeling in your family? What you say about your nation, how you live your life, how you conduct yourself, gives testimony to what kingdom has preeminence. It's not to say that this nation doesn't matter, but the way in which it matters stands in contrast to the greater kingdom of God that he's building. Fourth one. Drunkenness to shame. Verse 15, woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. 
Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and its inhabitants. So what's the woe? Woe to him who entices others unto drunkenness that they may be shamed. Okay, what, what, does, what does drunkenness do? Drinking to excess. It loosens moral and social boundaries, allowing for the expansion of social experience beyond certain inhibitions. So the idea here, you know, is that life wasn't sufficiently satisfying. Okay, the Babylonians were known for their drunken parties, and, you know, we could put adjectives in there that I won't use because they're children present, but you get the idea. Okay, they were known for this. The, the emphasis and the idea, life wasn't sufficiently satisfying as it was. I mean, with the extortion that's going on, right, with the building of nests on high by taking advantage and cheating other people, violence, all of these things, they added to this throwing drunken parties and in doing so, laughing at one another when those inhibitions fell. Right? What, what, is, what does that do? It raises the esteem of the one who sees himself as superior. Huh, look at that fool. You see what they're doing? Makes me feel better about myself. Causing shame upon someone else because you are superior. Seeing yourself as superior. That's the woe. What's the threat? The threat is that he will be filled with shame rather than the glory he seeks. It's a play on words. It says to drink. He's talking about drinking. Drinking in the, in the, in the Hebrew was to be filled with wine, filled with alcohol. And, and, and Habakkuk takes a spin on the word. It says instead of being filled with that, you'll be filled with shame. With a cup of God's wrath. What do you do with a cup? You fill it. Instead of that cup being filled with the wine you so desperately desire, be filled with God's wrath to your shame. Why? Because of the violence done to creation. You look at that's a parallel with verse 8, the first one about extortion. See, the sin doesn't just affect society. It affects all of creation, and God cares for all of create all of His creation, and we should too. We should see the impact that sin. And we look at it as well. This is just between me and this one other person. No, it has ripple effects and ramifications that spread throughout all of creation. So, what's the application? Beware of abusing resources to take advantage of others. There's enough there in drunkenness alone. You can expand that to any resource in which you might use it, abuse it, in order to take advantage of someone else. To stand on top of someone else's shoulders, shame them in order to make yourself feel better. This is what the proud heart does. See, God gives land and gives its resources for the good of his people that they may thrive. And he says, woe to the nation who abuses such re resources as their end will be misery and destruction. So fathers, what are you filling yourself with? What do you go to? 
Is it alcohol? Entertainment? Pornography? Hobbies? Work? These are all temptations. They're all out there easily accessible. The application is we should take Paul's words to the Ephesians. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's not like, oh, I've got the Holy Spirit. See, it's like a piece of paper. Paul says, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit, seeking the Holy Spirit because your sinful nature, the old self, does wages war against him. To so be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the last one, idolatry. It's fitting. It's fitting that he ends with idolatry. Okay, because in the big picture here with, with what's going on with Judah and with, uh, with the Babylonians, the big question is, well, whose God is better? Whose God's bigger? Who's, who's, you know, who's going to win? And as the Babylonians come in and conquer, it looks like, well, the Babylonians' God is greater. Right? Judah's God is, is weak. And the temptation for, the, for Judah would be to side with the Babylonians. Hey, you know what? Let's go here because it's practical, because it makes sense. We're going to lose faith in, the God, in, our, in our God, and we're going to go with this, these people's God because they're bigger, stronger, and they're winning. But God gives a woe to those who, uh, those who worship idols. So what profit is the idol when, his maker, when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher, a falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! And to a mute stone, Arise! Is that your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So the woe is to the one who makes his own God, the idol maker. Okay, and at the, at the heart of the idea behind an idol is trust. Trust is foundational to our existence. You know, we orient our lives around what we trust most. And our very lives depend on the reliability of what we trust. Think about this, you get in your car and you're going to drive home. Do you trust your car? Clearly, if you get in it and you drive it, you trust it. If you think there's a problem with my car and it might explode, are you going to get in it? No. Now you feather that out into all aspects of your, of your life and you see how foundational trust is. So an idol... I'll, I'll, hold, I'll hold that one. So the, the idol is ultimately what we trust in. And what's the threat to be without revelation or guidance that one seeks. That's the point. He says, you're going to trust in this thing that you have made by your own hands. There's no life in that idol. Right? It's made by man's hands. Or it's made in man's image and can only produce what man can accomplish. Therefore, it can only give. Therefore, it cannot give guidance and offer help. What's the reason that God, uh, the, the reason is a God that man creates is lifeless and therefore must stand silent before the living God who is. So what's the application? Beware of putting your priorities on things 
made rather than the maker of all things. It'd be easy to say, well, well wait a minute, I've, I've, I need a bank account. You know, I've got to have, uh, you know, I've, I've got to have these things. These things are necessary. These things are good, right? Personal fitness, beauty, bank accounts, personal abilities. Nations need armies, right? You know, protection. Now, these things are all good. So I need these things. So I don't know when it's not and when it's an idol. Very simple these things become idols for us when they're set as alternatives to God rather than being ga- engaged in service to God. An idol is something that we treasure that is made by our hands or, or created when it's set as an alternative to God rather than being used in an engagement and service to God. So we have to put our faith in the God who lives and will ultimately win the day even when it appears He will not. So fathers, what are you ultimately trusting in? Where is your trust when the rubber meets the road? So there's our five woes, five challenges to the proud heart. And these are not comprehensive at all. It's a sampling of what does it look like when the proud heart has its way, when God removes his hand of grace or at least detracts it for it to a distance. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. It's not just the temple in Jerusalem. It's the heavenly throne. Let all the earth be silent before him. So we see in these warnings that God will demonstrate himself as the ju- as just. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we look at these woes and we say, you know, these are true of me if I am honest with myself. Maybe not all of them, maybe not in their fullest capacity. But we can easily look at this and if we're honest, I think say, yeah, if, if I've been given the opportunity to cheat someone and I've done it. It doesn't matter how much. Right? It doesn't matter if you take 10 cents or a million dollars. It's still cheating. To set my nest on high. To build a house at the expense of others. To claim that, you know, this city and this kingdom, this is what really matters. And so I'm all about this. And we neglect the heavenly kingdom that God is becoming. We cease to live as sojourners. And we plan a city here. That we're prone to shame others. Even if it's in joking, we'll do so so that people think better than us, better of us. At the end of the day, oftentimes we would rather have a a God who is made in our image rather than serve the God in whose image we reflect. You see, no one escapes the proud heart. It's there. But praise be to God because he will demonstrate himself as the just 
and that all creation eagerly waits for that day. All creation sits silently waiting for God to demonstrate that. But he's also the justifier, the one who renounces his pride and puts his faith in Christ. Remember, all this, this section is all in the shadow of verse 4. The proud one, is not, his, soul, his soul is not right within him. But the just shall live by faith. Right? It's Christ who took that punishment for us. It's Christ who was plundered for our transgressions and paid the debt we owed with his own life. He was cut off from his people as he came to his own and his own did not know him. As they cried out at his trial, we have no king but Caesar. Away with him. His nakedness was exposed and he was put to shame that we might be covered with his righteousness. He drank the cup of God's wrath in full for our sakes that we might share in his glory. He is the eternal God from, from whom flows the water of living life. He's the only one who can give life because he has it within himself. He came into the world to make God known in the most unique and intimate way possible. And it's through him that the knowledge of the glory of, of God will fill the earth. Christians, we have much to put our faith in, in Jesus. So I encourage you during such frustrating and I know confusing times, Set your eyes on the God who lives and who is the just and the justifier through Jesus. Trust in Christ and look to him daily that your faith may be firm, firmly established and that you may endure. Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you and I praise you. Sometimes your word is hard. It's hard for us to navigate. I'm thankful, Father, for the gospel. That you bring clarity to the proud heart as you convict. Show our frailty and our weakness, our inability to live righteously. To earn your favor and to stand, to be in good standing with you. And praise you that you sent Jesus, your son that he might absorb the wrath, the punishment that we deserve. That on the day of judgment, those who have faith in Christ would not get what they deserve knowing that that would be horrendous. But they would get what they most certainly do not deserve. Peace, righteousness, fellowship with you. An experience in eternity that far outweighs even the greatest joys and pleasures ever experienced in this life. So, Father, keep us tethered to the cross. Though the winds and the waves of culture and of a, of a, of a divergent and, and, and difficult time may seek to sweep us away. Keep us tethered to the cross, tethered to Christ, to have a clear view of who Jesus is, why he matters, how the gospel applies to us and to the people around us. And keep us faithful like Habakkuk.
that there would be in our character and in our natural rhythms of life, there would be a humble boldness to live and, have our, uh, live and move and have our being in such a way that brings honor and glory to your name. And that, Father, we might be faithful to share the message of the gospel with the people that you put us in contact with this next week. And, Father, that the knowledge of the glory of you would go throughout the world. Until Christ comes, we pray. Amen. Well, thank you. Happy, again, happy Father's Day again to all you dads. Um, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance towards you. May he give you peace. You're dismissed.